This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom, righteously American. Welcome to the Stacy on the Right Show podcast, where you find all the coolest stuff you can tune into from your phone. Still the same hostess with the mostess. If you are not yet subscribed, you should really join us on SiriusXM, The Patriot. That's where you're going to have the most fun in the evenings, every night, 9 p.m. to midnight, Eastern Standard Time. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Andy No to the program. He is an American journalist best known for covering protests in Portland, Oregon. He has written columns in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, National Review, and others. His series for the New York Post on Portland's fake hate crime industry became a viral sensation. He drew national attention when he was attacked by Antifa on the streets of Portland in the summer of 2019. Until recently, he was an editor for Quillette.com. So, Andy, uh, how has Antifa moved into the mainstream? Because of the surprise election win of Trump in 2016, they were given an opportunity to move into the mainstream left because of propaganda from journalists and politicians on the left who were repeating this lie that we were on the cusp of another Holocaust because Trump is, was a fascist. So it gave the Antifa an opportunity to move in and to wreak havoc and to kill and to cause misery and destruction over years now in the name of anti-fascism when, when what they actually are are anarchist communists trying to destabilize the United States. Is that common knowledge within the organized left, and I'm talking about Democrats, DNC operatives, people who are, are very much a respectable part of society, they're elected or they serve in roles that have them on MSNBC and CNN, and they constantly say uh, anything they can to deflect away from the damage caused by Antifa, the lives lost, the violence, and the singular purpose they seem to exist to create anarchy and to destroy American values. How is it that that just that truth can be so detached from what we hear from people on the left? Great question. So I think I write about this in the book. Uh, Antifa are particularly empowered and have become a mainstream phenomenon because of these useful idiots that are in the Democrat Party and who work in legacy media who are ignorant about Antifa's ideology, their organizing tactics. They actually inadvertently repeat Antifa's talking points that they're just anti-fascists opposing neo-Nazis and white supremacists. So I think um, one issue we've been dealing with for a long time in this country is that the, the, the mainstream left doesn't want to admit that they have extremists on their side. In fact, they will always deflect the other side and make excuses. I don't know about thought of partisanship or, or what, but I mean, Antifa should be easy to condemn, considering their movement that carries out terrorist attacks. I mean, they set fires to buildings of people inside. They make homemade IEDs and they bring them to riots and they throw them at police. Um, they've actually killed in the name of their ideology. You would think that with all of the wanton violence that they were doing on camera last year that resulted in deaths, that that would be enough for sensible, decent people to condemn. 
But instead, we've been told this lie over and over that the violence is only coming from the far right. So, Andy, is it true when I say I, I, I believe that Antifa members far outnumber um, white supremacists in this country right now or KKK members? Is that accurate or, or are they about the same in numbers? What is the, the actual truth about that? So, Stacey, the numbers are actually uh, probably impossible to estimate just because, uh, as you probably know, they, there's no card-carrying membership. So they're organized um, in phantom cells. That's the term that, count, uh, that counter-extremists uh, who research extremism give to that type of organization of where they're organized autonomously and they're connected by networks, but the, you know, the line between who's a member versus who's an ardent supporter versus who, who, so who uh, aids and abets, those lines kind of blur. I would say, though, that looking at cities like Portland and Seattle uh, in the Pacific Northwest, where they've been most active, it does give me a decent estimate in some of their numbers. We're really looking at, at least at the city level, in the hundreds, which is probably more, definitely more than the size that you see of actual um, neo-Nazi members. Um, however, there's always a sort of plausible deniability with Antifa, and they do that because they don't want their networks broken up. They don't want law enforcement to look into who is involved in their criminal organizing. So uh, you mentioned Portland, and that has been you know, primarily one of the places where when you're live streaming or you're doing video, you're usually in Portland. And that's where I actually had a caller uh, call into the program and say, you know, Antifa is nothing new to us. We've always had anarchists in Portland. It's kind of like their home base. They grow here. They're cultivated here. They're allowed to operate with impunity here. And that's why they stay here, because you, you just wouldn't have those same activities by an organized group of people be tolerated in a place like where I live. Uh, St. Louis may be a murder capital, top five every year. But in the suburbs, they're really it's peaceful and it's tranquil and there would never be uh, in a place where Antifa could kind of start up here and really set up shop and operate the way they do in Portland. So what is the solution to that? I mean, obviously, law and order. But is there anything else? Oh, I'm so glad that that person called in to give that insight. You're right. People ask me why. Why? Why is Portland the epicenter of America and Antifa? Well, for one, it's a it's a for, left-wing monoculture. So there's no incentive or mechanism for those who are elected in office to moderate. They're always pushed further and further to the left. And we've had the Oberton window pushed so far to the left that the mayor, who was elected ostensibly as a sensible Democrat back in 2017, turned a blind eye to Antifa because he, like so many in our country, just has this blinding hatred for the previous administration and was willing to tolerate anything that said that they opposed Donald Trump. So I think what makes, um, but the problem is that the, what happens in Portland doesn't stay in Portland. You see, when Antifa develop and refine their methods of rioting and criminal organizing, they lay these out in sort of training guides that then get shared to their comrades in different areas and they share their knowledge of what works well here, how do we make it work, how do we sustain four plus months of rides every night, every night, every night. These lessons are shared with 
in other places so that similar actions can be repeated. So I don't think we should just be um, thinking that this is an isolated thing that will stay just in the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, we do know um, that they travel to different areas. They fundraise as well to support their comrades in different cities and states even. I mean, when riots were breaking out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, there was a whole busload of Antifa from Portland and Seattle who were arrested by federal authorities in Wisconsin. So they take road trips as well to try to help others start what they call uprisings in different areas. I think I was on the plane with one coming. Uh, I was traveling for just doing campaign stuff. And um, I don't know, I just he just had on, um, most of his clothes were black, but he, then he had a mask on, which was a, a black bandana. And he just looked so miserable. <laughs> I thought, I'm, you know, I'm in the zone of where he could be traveling to. I wonder if that's him. But of course, I couldn't say anything. And of course, he could have just been someone who loves wearing black. I mean, plenty of people love that. Um, so I, I'm wondering about what happened on the 6th of January and the fact that there were some buzz online social media. Have you found in your investigative research uh, into the 6th or if you've done very much with that, that there was Antifa involvement in that day where the rioting happened? Um, I know I was asked this question a lot of the rumors are being uh, spread that day that it could have been a false flag operation. I've looked into this extensively. I don't think that the evidence exists as of right now. I know the investigations are being carried out and people, suspects are having trials. So we'll see if that evidence materializes, but I'm, I'm not inclined to believe that it was um, spearheaded by Antifa infiltrators. I, they haven't been able to do something like that before in a right-wing setting. Um, that's a much more difficult operation to do than, for example, when they embed themselves in a BLM environment where they have already have a partnership and open allies in BLM. Um, however, regarding the 6th of January, I do think it's important to say that for all of the politicians who have been vocal in their condemnations of that um, riot and siege of the Capitol, they were silent last year when my city was under siege, Portland, Oregon, when all the actions that were done on the 6th, all that was done and more uh, for months on end in other parts of the country. And at best, they were silent. And uh, at worst, they were actually encouraging people to donate to some of the crowdfunding campaigns to keep the riots going. So I'm really glad you mentioned that, Andy, because one of the things that infuriated me the most about the backlash from the 6th, because I condemned it as well, I, there's no way you're ever going to find, uh, at least that I know, conservatives or Republicans or even just Americans writ large who are going to say, oh, the Capitol, that was fine, you know, no big deal. Everyone condemns that. Um, but we didn't see such round condemnations on the violence. And you just you mentioned that un, unprompted by me. Um, why do you think people have been able to get away with that until finally, I mean, it, it reached such a high level that they did follow on and, you know, some of the Democrats said, oh, this won't stand, you know, we need to have peace. And they never named anybody specifically, but they did say, you know, we need to stop the protests, we need to stop the violent rioting. But that was after the polls showed that the people were turning against Democrats because of this. Why is that such a norm now where things are on fire and CNN says mostly peaceful and people in politics just look the other way. You're right. It does appear to be a norm in that 
political violence from the left has been mainstreamed, and that has been to the huge benefit of Antifa. We saw this going back a few years ago. I was very concerned and disturbed when punch a Nazi became such a celebrated meme, because I already knew at that time that the people that Antifa called fascists didn't just include the far right, it included anybody who they thought supported Donald Trump or anybody who dared to wave an American flag out in the street. And that's exactly what happened. That's, the violence was directed to those people. People who had nothing to do with extremist ideologies were being targeted as so-called fascists. Um, I think the, what the country is dealing with is we're dealing with the consequences of what happens when one political ideology, left-wing ideology, has cultural dominance and saturation in every institution of life, from civil society to now government, federal government, local government, entertainment, education, um, etc. They're able to set the rules. So the rules they set now is that violence that furthers their cause or violence that they find sympathetic is tolerable. Looting in their cause is tolerable. Any violence that is done on the other side must be condemned and prosecuted. So these are the rules that uh, they've laid out, it seems. Well, I, I just don't feel like there should be an acceptance. So I, I don't think we can ever accept, even if someone controls the rules and sets rules that we find unconscionable we can't accept them the the big deal for us is to continue to fight back which i feel that's what your work does your your writing of this book the articles that you write the journalism that you do the investigations the the continual um you stay with these people you you don't let them run you off that what that has to be the mantra for all of us as well we have to be willing to continue to fight for the ideals of you know truth liberty justice the rule of law, um, things that have made this country great in order to maintain it. When things like this rise up, like Antifa, we have to stand and fight against it. Absolutely. I think, uh, in addition to people ask me, how can we stop the violence from Antifa? I mean, one, one answer to that is a law enforcement answer, um, breaking up these networks, prosecuting those who organize, and participate in crimes. But the other thing is, there has to really be a wholesale challenge of the ideas that Antifa have entered into the mainstream, namely the use of force for their political purposes, um, the, how they remade words to mean completely different things, like how fascist now just means anybody who's against them. They, they also call things like capitalism, uh, free expression, they call those fascistic as well. There has to be an ideological pushback, and I'm not sure where it's going to come from, um, but if we don't, I mean, I think the the future of this country is at risk. I mean, if you break apart the founding ideals and values of this country that keep it functioning and successful and prosperous, um, I mean, what you have are uh, essentially first world slums, as you have now in parts of Portland and Seattle. Wow. So um, I just recommend the people to get the book and they can find the, the link in the show notes for the page today for, for our program. Um, and I want to kind of talk a little bit more about it so that people can understand what they're going to get. It's not just your writing, but it's also you have images in here. 
pictures of what you have seen and and the investigations that you've done and and reference materials. So could you kind of round this out by sharing a little bit more about um, like how long did it take you to write the book and and why did you decide that you were going to go beyond your writing and investigations and actually write a book about this? Um, so I, I, what kept me really going was, uh, so after I was, I was beaten by Antifa in the summer of 2019, uh, a lot of people first heard of me because of that. Um, and I was diagnosed with a brain hemorrhage as a result of that Antifa beating. I mean, after that, I felt like I had a choice. I had a choice to um, move on from the topic of Antifa, and that's what some editors and mentors were recommending I do, that um, that I would, I would only be subjecting myself either to more hit pieces and smears and assaults in the future if I focus on this. Um, I could move on to write about different topics. But I just kept thinking about um, all the other people that have been brutalized and victimized by the extremists who are part of Antifa and people who don't have any ways for their stories to be told. I mean, they're silenced. The police don't investigate their cases. And then even if they do speak out, they usually are demonized in the public. So I felt like there was a lot resting um, on my shoulders that I needed to continue. And, you know, I could do many of these short reports as I normally do, but I realized there's just so much I have to dive into that requires a book. And then as I started writing the book, then the events of 2020 happened when we had riots from coast to coast. And as I was looking at the videos in different cities, I was seeing certain patterns emerge. You know, people wearing the same black uniforms, very strategically smashing the windows of certain businesses that ended up being looted, and then they would return and throw some type of incendiary device to torch the buildings to the ground. And then I saw that Antifa accounts online were calling for the comrades to go to these places and were telling them to bring these riot gears. Now it's just like, this, this has to be told because if we are depending only on our legacy media, the headlines are, you would just think that these are mostly peaceful anti-racist protests rather than the riots that claimed dozens of lives that was organized and orchestrated and actually had a lot of money involved. I just encourage people to get the book. I'm listening to you talking and I mean, it's a page turner. And the, the other thing that you do in here is you, you, Andy, you take the history, you take how Antifa works, you explain all of it. And you're coming from the perspective of, as you said, you know, you were attacked with what they call a milkshake, which is actually quickcrete mixed with liquid. And so it actually burns you because we're not meant to have quickcrete on our skin. It's 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 in, it's a you know, it's it's a building product. And that was when you, you know, really it, it, you rose to national prominence. But for those of us who knew you before that, I was horrified by it and also by the reaction online, which was pure hatred as opposed to, oh, no, he was hurt. He's a journalist, you know, because there's there's never that reaction when CNN journalists get into the fray and they're hurt. They're always elevated and all of that. Um, so I we can never cover everything within the book on an interview. But I'm so glad we got to talk about just some of what you have done. You have endnotes, you have sources, a huge, huge amount of research and information that went into you compiling this book and writing it. I want to say thank you. Um, 
thank you for doing this. Thank you for not giving up. The kind of courage that you're displaying is the stuff that um, history smiles upon. And the people who are the recipients of that, us Americans, if we just take the time to read your work, we're better informed and we hopefully will be able to finally vanquish Antifa. Um, I, I, it's, it's not like it looks great right now, but I think your book is a great first step in Americans becoming informed and m- propelling us towards that outcome. Thank you so much, Stacey. Those uh, words mean a lot to me. Well, I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk. And so I want to encourage everybody to get the book. You can find the link in the show notes and also on my social media pages. And um, you can also find more of Andy's writing at centerstreet.com, centerstreet.com. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Obamacare. The very sound of it makes many of us cringe because we know our choices have been limited and the premiums just keep going up every year. We send our money to big insurance companies who cover elective abortions and profit from us while we struggle to make the monthly payments. Aren't you ready to break free from the shackles of high-cost health care? Please meet my friends at the Alliance for Shared Health, ASH for short. ASH is a health share ministry with over 40,000 households participating. They integrate best-in-class healthcare access solutions with the health share world to solve the health care crisis. As a member, you share in the financial burden related to catastrophic health care expenses while also having your own needs met. It's so easy. You can access the virtual care provider at zero cost, pick up a prescription from the pharmacy using the share prescription card, and order expensive lab or imaging tests at discounts of 60 to 80%, conveniently accessed on your phone via the Share mobile app. Not only is ASH helping U.S. residents break free from government-controlled health care, ASH is an international health share ministry. $1 per household per month connects members to its East African health share predecessor, where thousands and thousands of lives are being saved through the ASH-funded pediatric hospital in the remote villages. With open enrollment here, now is your chance to save 50 to 70% on your monthly premiums while making a difference in the lives of so many in need. Reach out to Ash today. Visit ashcommunity.org. That's ashcommunity.org. Alliance for Shared Health. Changing healthcare, changing lives.